This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Taylor Swift there, feel it, shone in your face on 3CR with James. Three great guests on today's show, Raphael Farmer, Sam Elkin and Moria Finnecane join us. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Raphael is on the line right now from Perth. Raphael, Raphael Farmer, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. You're a novelist, you're an awesome YouTube blogger, you're a radio presenter. I've read that much of your art is influenced by leaving your homeland of Mauritius and your native languages of French and Creole. Can you tell us about your immigration story that brought you to Perth? Well, when I was a kid, I wanted to um, come to Australia. That was my dream. It was something I was really wanting to do. I don't know why there was a calling there that Australia was going to be uh, where I had to be. So um, I worked really hard at school and everything. <laughs> Thanks to my parents' help as well. They um, helped me in achieving my dreams. And I came to Australia to study film and TV. That was my first thing. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then uh, I discovered the love of screenwriting while I was here and wanted to pursue that. And then I really loved the country. I really wanted to stay. And now I'm here, like uh, 15 years later, I'm still here. Your short story, Island Boy, was published in the Wave After Wave anthology. To what extent was it autobiographical? Uh, It was inspired by some elements of my experience here, uh, especially with the culture clash uh, coming from an island like Mauritius, where uh, it's quite, Mauritius itself is quite influenced by uh, Europe and America and all that. So the way, say, for example, people interacted with their friends uh, was very different. Whereas here, something I've learned quickly when I came to Australia was like, you don't just become friends straight away with someone else. You kind of have to build towards that. You have kind of to work at it. And then maybe three months after you've met, you might have a coffee down the track and maybe become closer friends. I'm exaggerating, but that's kind of um, one of the things that inspired Island Boy in, in Wave After Wave. But then also the Australia for me was when I was moving from Mauritius was a sort of promised land of... Um, gay opportunities for me because I didn't have a gay club in Mauritius. There was no avenues for me to explore my sexuality in that sense. So coming to Australia was a way for me to actually finally have the freedom to go to a gay bar or a gay club and start, you know, dating people and stuff like that. So part of that is inspired for Island Boy in that sense. You write young adult fiction as well. Tell us about your novels Carried Away and Firefly. So Carried Away and Firefly are two short stories I wrote uh, a few years ago now. It was kind of like get my name out there into the, you know, into the world of writing so people could see what I was about a little bit. What I want to write, what I write actually, are stories with gay characters as the main characters, the main focus of the story. So gay fiction kind of thing. And uh, that's always been something I wanted to write because growing up there was... N- not much of that, if at all. Like, the only place I could find any sort of a gay story was in Japanese animation. And that was even quite subtle there. So um, so when I was deciding what to write, it was it made sense to me to write stories with gay characters. And those two stories have gay teenagers coming to terms with their sexuality in different ways. Carried Away, for example, is a sweet kind of light story about a boy, like confessing to his crush that he loves him. And the second one, Firefly, is more of a darker turn where 
the love is more of an obsession and the dangers of, you know, having to bottle up your feelings when you can't actually share them in with the, without the risk of being alienated or worse. So those were two things I want to explore with those two short stories. And yeah, right now I'm writing um, so gay fiction and that's my current state at the moment. Oh, do tell about your current project. Well, my current project is a, um, so a gay fiction story uh, with um, older characters. Uh, they're not teenagers. And it explores sexuality, but also I'm going to kind of go a little bit, extend a little bit what Island Boy started. So kind of go a little bit over like the, the, uh, the, the pains and the pleasures of discovering who you are as a person in terms of personality, sexuality, and interacting with the people and reaction, action and consequences, that sort of stuff. So that's a little bit about the ideas I'm playing with with this current working progress. You mentioned Japanese animation before and your love of animation really comes out in your YouTube blog. Tell us about yeah. how you explore animation in your blog. I love animation in uh, Japanese animation and American animation as well. Recently, I just did a, a video on Superman, and I've kind of explored the idea that that they should actually focus, try and focus uh, more of their efforts towards animation to tell their story, especially with superhero stories, as they tend to do it better in animation. And I was talking about specifically about the director, uh, Sam Liu, who I really, really enjoy his work, and he really approached the character in a different way and uh, in a way that was not shackled by the live-action scene. So he was able to kind of tell the story based on Superman as a character. And I see that quite often in Japanese animation where the focus is not really, or quite often is not on the superficial effects to enhance the story, but they are focused more on the characters themselves. The characterization plays a major, major part in the storytelling. And... Quite often uh, in Japanese animation, you have a specific genre that digs into same-sex relationships, same-sex characters, that sort of stuff. And I find that quite enriching. It's a shame that it is not more popular than it is. And it is kind of popular, but not as much as I would hope it to be, because there's so much you could tell with animation. Wow. And the Japanese exploration of it must have some real cultural nuances. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, for example, there's um, there's two kinds of stories with Japanese animation when it comes to same-sex uh, to gay stories. Is they are the ones where it's kind of almost implied but not explicitly stated because the way Japanese see it, they see it as you falling in love with the soul of the person or just the personality of the other person, that sort of stuff. It, it's quite rare that they would actually explicitly say, hey, this is a gay character having a gay relationship. It's implied but not explicit. Then you have the other kind where it is explicit and it is a bit more um, adult, a bit more mature in how it approaches it when it comes to uh, how the Japanese culture sees it in terms of masculinity, uh, the role of the man and uh, or the women if it's a um, lesbian relationship. And it is um, a bit darker in terms. So you have the two kind of ways to approach it and i find it fascinating that the japanese in animation are so free to do stories like that when apparently in their culture itself in the everyday culture real life it's very very restrained and very conservative uh, it's actually quite difficult for gay teenagers to actually exist in japan for example so it's, it's, i find it fascinating actually i really love your youtube video blogs uh, you mentioned the one about superman before you really came to life in in that blog and you talked about how rebooted superman movies can't get it right can you explore that a bit with us well um 
Um, the way I said with the Superman movies that they focus too much on the special effects. And I get it because nowadays it's easier to make someone fly, it's easier to create a like, massive punch, etc. The special effects are pretty amazing to see. However, special effects are nothing if there's no story to tell with it. And I find that with Superman right now, it's like, one, they use the special effects to kind of create a story but without a good story, it goes nowhere. And two, because Superman is, a, is an old character, is an archetype, they tend to focus too much on trying to make him cool, so get rid of the red underwear, make him darker, etc. It just doesn't work with him because Superman is not about being cool. Superman is about standing for what's right, for truth, justice, the American way. That's the Superman motto. And it's not a cool thing to say or do, but however, that's what the character is. And when you take away that from the character, then you kind of lose the identity of the character. So it's not about being cool, it's about doing what's right. And uh, I quoted that from um, a TV series on Superman with Dean Cain and Terry Hatcher uh, from the 90s series. And I find that is a very true way to, uh, a very good way to see Superman is that Superman is what he can do, but Clark is, is who he is. And I think if they reboot a movie, they should focus on Superman as a person, as a man, before the powers. Why do you love Superman so much? I mean, you um, you love to wear Superman T-shirts, for example. I, I, I get the impression Superman has had a huge impact on you. Oh, very, very big impact because Superman to me, in a nutshell, is planning for who you are, for you, who you truly are and standing for what's right and growing up and all that and seeing injustice all over the place. You kind of have a, different reactions to it. And my reactions to that is that I always do what's right, even if it's sometimes stupid and uncool to do it. To give you a simple example, and sometimes I feel stupid about doing it, but sometimes I'm like, you know what, but that's it. this is who I am, and that's why I love Superman. One day I was at a uh, video shop, and they told me, and I was getting my like, DVDs out, and it was like, I don't know, $10 for the DVDs or whatever, to get them out for the week. And they told me, oh, it's your birthday today, so you get it for free. But the thing is, it wasn't my birthday, so it was wrong. So I said to her, uh, the counter person, I was like, it's not my birthday today. My birthday is this date. It's the 24th of March. It's not, uh, it's not today. And she just smiled at me and said, okay, well, that's $10 then. I'm like, okay, cool. There you go. And it was like, to me, it's just kind of summed up who I am is that sometimes I will, I will do, I will just do what's right because I believe that's what the right, right thing to do. Even if it's an advantage I got, it's like, well, if I didn't, if it's not meant to be, it's not, uh, if I didn't earn it, then that's not right. So, so you can I really, you can really empathize with the morals of Superman by the sounds of it. Yeah. I'm empathized with that, and I believe that you have to stay true to who you are. And for me, truth and justice means a lot. And to be who you, who you truly are inside means a lot because that means uh, your mental health in a more adult way. Like your mental health is uh, much healthier uh, for lack of a better term. So when you deny who you truly are, you're denying your true happiness. And I think doing that is awful. It's it's miserable. Like we are lucky to be alive. Uh, to be alive is a gift, and you should actually just be who you want to be and be happy with that so that you can actually enjoy the life you were given. Absolutely. You're also a lover of Stephen King novels. Which one has had the biggest impact on you and why? The one that has a, had the biggest impact on me was his short uh, story collection called um, Different Seasons because it was, to me, the a collection that kind of showed Stephen King for more than just what he was known for. Before reading that, I thought Stephen King was just horror and scary stuff. But then I read this short story collection and I realized that it was much more than that. 
And Stephen King had the same issue that people have with Superman was that they just focus on the superficial part of the character, not the core of it. And with Stephen King, what he cares about is the story of the everyday man, the everyday person, and they're put in extraordinary circumstances and you explore human nature through that. And that short story collection opened my eyes to it. And that contains, you know, like the story that was based on For Shawshank Redemption, For um, Send By Me, etc. And the same with The Shining, um, which is a very well-known story of his. However, people remember The Shining for Jack Nicholson being crazy in a hotel when the core story is about a father and a son and the love of a father for his son. And it's completely lost in uh, translation to film. But if you read the book, it's more about that and the scary stuff. So that's why I love Stephen King. It's more than, than meets the eye. You also have your own radio show on R2R FM in Perth. Tell us about the show and its exploration of popular culture. So my radio segment, uh, my radio party, is um, on The Breakfast with Taylor, uh, so on RTR FM, and it is uh, Farmerville. So we explore everything to do with pop culture, whether it's uh, from the TV landscape, film landscape, or gaming, um, so all these interesting places where things happen. So what we do, uh, so throughout the week, I kind of keep I keep an eye out anyway because I love this stuff. So I'll keep an eye out on interesting elements of pop culture that happen w- within the week. And we discuss it on air with Taylor. And we go from anything to do with like things that most people would have heard of. Like, for example, on our latest show, we talked about Friends, the Friends reunion. And that's something a lot of people would have heard about or know about to a bit more obscure stuff from the pop culture landscape, like the gaming news of, you know, the latest Xbox spec details and what it means for the video game culture and landscape and how it's changing the industry and how we see culture, uh, the pop culture now with movies being made on games, etc. So we explore different kind of avenues to kind of give a wide, wide taste of pop culture to our audience who might not know all this stuff or might know but would like a bit more light shed on them. Raphael, I absolutely love the diversity of your work. Thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Alicia Keys and Beyonce there. Put it in a love song. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Victoria's LGBTIQ legal service has produced an inclusive toolkit uh, focused on the LGBTI community for community legal centres. And on the line, we have the service's lawyer, Sam Elkin. Sam, welcome to 3CR. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's always great to chat, Sam. Sam, this is a great resource. What were some of your experiences and insights as a community lawyer working with the queer community that motivated you to develop the toolkit? Yeah, it's been an interesting experience putting it together because as a lawyer who previously worked in a mainstream service, I guess I saw some of the best and some of the worst examples of inclusive practice by lawyers. I think it's fair to say that anybody who has to see a lawyer either in court or coming to a community legal centre generally isn't having a good day when they're doing that. Um, Court stuff is stressful, legal issues are hard, and you just want to be respected and accepted for who you are when you actually have to have you know, a fairly essential service. So that's why we wanted to put it together. Um, We wanted to make sure that everybody going to, you know, legal aid or a community legal centre or a private law firm in Victoria will be able to have um, a respectful experience so they're not misgendered, um, they're not expected to harmful stereotypes and that they can, you know, just get what they need and, and move on with their lives. So how do you teach all that and cover all that in the toolkit? It's, yeah, it's certainly um, 
you know, a bit of a journey that we want organisations to go on. So we're trying to get beyond, you know, LGBTI information 101 sessions and actually asking organisations to embed practices, policies and procedures to actually change the way that that their core business is done. So we're asking organisations to consider, you know, changing their data collection tools to make sure that there are, you know, more options than just male and female. We're asking organisations to actually start collecting data on um, sexual orientation and trans and gender diverse status where appropriate so that we can actually understand what the legal need is there. And we're asking organisations to do things like start having transition leave policies within their own workplaces to actually build inclusion in their own workplaces as well. Do you find there's much resistance to that policy change? I don't know yet because we've literally just put the toolkit out yesterday and we've got a whole bunch of template policies in there like gender identity policies, sexual harassment policies, bullying policies and it's really yet to be seen whether the legal profession picks this up and runs with it or not. So I guess I'll find out in the next few months. What were community legal services telling you about the need for this resource? Like generalist services for example and even specialist ones? Oh, I mean, since I started in the job back in May 2018, um, you know, mainstream community legal centres like my colleague and my colleagues in other services have been asking me to come out and provide training to them. They know that they don't necessarily have the competency in this area. There's a lot of confusion. You know, I think there's a lot of well-meaning people that aren't really sure what they're supposed to do, what's what's appropriate and what's not. And they've, you know, really been clamouring for this toolkit to be provided for ages. So I'm really glad that we finally managed to deliver it to them so that they can work on their practice, um, you know, wherever they might be, out in Ringwood or, you know, out in Werribee, that that everybody can get the same um, expectation of, of an inclusive service. What are some of the most common legal issues that the LGBTIQ community is talking to you about at the moment in the current climate? Yeah, we're just... um crunching all of our data at the moment to put together a legal needs analysis of our sector. So this has been something very much on my mind. I think it's fair to say that our biggest level of demand has been around family violence and also, in many cases, police complaints attached to family violence issues. So where police you know, haven't treated an LGBTIQ person with the level of respect or dignity or have just absolutely misunderstood the situation and thought that the, uh, you know, the victim in the matter was actually the perpetrator. So we get a lot of family violence requests for support. We get a lot of discrimination requests, particularly around healthcare, privacy complaints. What else? Yeah, criminal law stuff, particularly around people who are having problematic um, issues around drug and alcohol use. Often there are a lot of criminal issues that come out of that. And also standard stuff like tenancies, evictions, um, NDIS appeals, so much different stuff. The legal need is really there and people are really seeking out a specialist service because they're worried about being discriminated against, which is why the capacity building piece is so important because, you know, we can't do everything for everyone. We've got to make sure the whole sector can do this stuff. You must be really worried about the federal government's religious discrimination legislation and the legal impacts, especially around discrimination, that's going to have on our community. Yeah, I mean, we get inquiries from people all the time worrying about being discriminated. I think there's a lot of um, uncertainty around what the law is at the moment. And I think that if the legislation passes, then that's just going to create 
you know, <laughs> so much uncertainty both for providers of things like healthcare and for for clients. I know myself as a you know trans person, I'm I'm terrified of this legislation passing because you know I don't want to go to a healthcare provider and be discriminated against. Um, I want to know what my rights are, and um, you know I want to know what the level playing field is. And we probably won't know that for years because this legislation is so confusing. It'll probably need to go through you know a, a superior court for us to even understand what they can and can't do under this law. So many ideas, so many projects to work on. If you could secure funding for an LGBTIQ legal project, what would it be? What would your dream project be? Uh, I mean, I think the thing that is desperately missing in our community is a LGBTIQ-specific immigration lawyer. Um, There is so many people seeking um, protection you know, in in Australia today who might be from other countries and fearing for their lives if they were to return to their country of origin, either on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, or um, people that are worried about being kicked out of the country on the grounds of their HIV status, where they're international students. Um, I would love for there to be more support for people in that situation because um, the called LGBTIQ community who are on insecure visas are some of the most, you know, oppressed people in our in our Australian society and, and frankly, we're not doing enough at the moment. What other projects have you got in the pipeline at the LGBTIQ Legal Service here in Victoria? Um, well, we've got the Legal Needs Analysis um, that's going to be coming out in June 2020. So we're hoping that's going to be kind of like the private lives study of the legal sector so um, that people get a really clear picture of what the legal need is in Victoria. So that's a big piece of work that we're planning on delivering on in the next few months. We've got um, our second Change Your ID Day coming up on the 15th of May um, 2020 at the Kathleen Stein Library. So we're partnering with Trans Gender Victoria and with the City of Melbourne Library to um, put our second change of ID day on and um, the birth, death and marriages amendment laws will have come into effect by then so people will be able to change their gender marker in a safe and inclusive environment so I'm really really excited about that one. Fantastic now if our legal services want to get a copy of your inclusion toolkit how can they go about it? Yeah, so you'll be able to get it from the end of next week online. We've actually just got a brand new website, which is lgbtiqlegal.org.au. We're just making a couple of changes to it at the moment because we got some really helpful feedback at our launch. So we're incorporating those at the moment. But from about mid-next week, you'll be able to get it online um, in our Information for Legal Professionals section. Fantastic. Sam Elkin, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Much appreciated. Thank you. Supremes come together. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. While wise words and night of intergenerational storytelling is happening next Wednesday at Hares and Hyenas here in Melbourne in the lead up to International Women's Day on the 8th of March. On the line, we have one of the performers who'll be telling their intergenerational stories. There's a smorgasbord of LGBTIQ authors and performers who'll be speaking, and one of them is the legendary Moira Finnecane, and she joins us on the line. Moira, welcome to the show. 
Oh, it's lovely to join you, James. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Moira, what are some of the issues that you might be raising uh, when you talk about your lived experiences at the Incredible Wise Words? <laughs> well, I have always been a great believer of International Women's Day as, as an opportunity to come together and celebrate that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. I, I think as as a woman born in this day and age, I... I experience oppression. As a queer woman, I experience oppression. As a, as a white Australian, I know I have immense privilege. And when I look back at the struggles of my foremothers to give me a vote, to allow me to own my own property, to allow me to have access and rights to my children if I should split up from my husband, which I don't have one, but if I did, that that is such a it's a, such a powerful benefit that travels down through the generations and also such a powerful goodwill that for me, coming together at such an iconic venue like Hares and Hyenas to celebrate that is such a privilege. I cannot wait. You have such an intersection in your works between performance and activism. What's the biggest lesson that you have learned in that regard over the, over the years that you've been performing? I think that there's a few things that I've learned. Um, one of them is that radical hospitality changes lives. And what I mean by that is I trained as an environmental scientist. I worked in world heritage and environmental law and wetland rehabilitation for a while. And I also worked in human rights, focusing on gender violence and trafficking and refugee children's rights for many years. So I look, I look at my work as an artist and I know that there's many people in the world that would rather have their teeth pulled out than see a feminist performance artist and would rather have all their teeth pulled out than see a queer feminist performance artist. So one of the things that I practice in my work is radical hospitality. We take our work to all kinds of audiences all over the world and I, I treasure those audiences. I treasure the humanity of those people and I watch them transform as they are treasured and in an oppressive patriarchal society people aren't treasured that's the that's there's a truck passing by sorry listeners um you know people aren't treasured they they are not treasured and part of the success of oppression is not treasuring people so i ensure that i treasure all people which doesn't mean i don't demand respect for them and demand for my artists but that's that's a powerful force in my work. How would you describe LGBTIQ activism now compared to when you first started as an activist and a performer in the community? Wow, that is such an interesting question, James. When I first started as a performer in the community, um, in fact, my very first performances in my whole life were in queer and underground clubs. So there was a very big movement actually led by a guy called Bruce Rolfe. Um, They were... AIDS-oriented, ACT-UP-oriented, powerful cultural interventions. So there were operas in nightclubs. There was all kinds of performance. And that was a wildly political space full of people that were passionate about what they were expressing. I was just going to say, like, you know, oppression was a theme then in the early 90s, and now oppression seems to have returned through the religious discrimination legislation. I mean, you must be scratching your head and going, oh, my God, we're going, you know, full circle. I guess I, I don't even see it as a full circle. I see it as an evolution. I, I, I'm in those days, back in those days when I first started to become active as a queer activist and I never identified as lesbian. You know, I've had 
beloved to a man and beloved to a woman and drag queens and drama queens and everybody else in between. So I never saw myself as you know gay or lesbian. And when I started out in in the community, that was you know more controversial than it is now. But I also think that we the the changes that have happened, James, the changes that have happened to people's self-esteem, to the way they live their lives. When I first started hanging out in queer nightclubs, so many people didn't have their biological families around them and they made families from their friends because they had been rejected by their families. And I see so many more people surrounded and held by their biological families and their families of friends that it, it makes me want to cry with joy. So our leaders, our federal leaders, who are not my leaders, but nonetheless, they are leading this country, have an antipathy towards the arts, they have an antipathy towards human rights, and they certainly have an antipathy towards our queer brothers and sisters. So I don't look to them for my guidance, um, but I see families changing. And that's something that that's something that I would really encourage our queer listeners to think about, looking back on the way families were able to embrace their queer children and looking at families embracing their queer children now. Wouldn't you agree, James? That's just been a huge change. Absolutely. And just, you know, the uh, I think the marriage equality debate did a lot for that inclusiveness. I think, it, you know, it's funny. Some friends of mine got married in London once those laws changed and they were terribly anti-marriage and very poo-poo about it. But nonetheless, they got married because, because of a whole range of visa and associated reasons. Anyway, it changed their lives because they felt in an unexpected way that they were real, that they were seen, that they were celebrated. And it was really quite moving to see these two women who completely eschewed, you know, any authority find themselves being seen and celebrated as the couple in a way they hadn't expected. And it was, it was quite extraordinary. And that's whether you want to get married or not, the changing of those laws has allowed people to know that if they did, that they can be seen and they can be celebrated and that that celebration will be legal, will be constituted. And it's, it's really an extraordinary change. It means more than just getting married. One issue that's very dear to your heart, I know, is working with Indigenous communities, and you've done a lot with Indigenous communities in outback areas. Can you tell us about the experience in that regard that's moved you the most? Uh, you know, I saw Frozen the other day, Frozen 2, listeners go and see it, <laughs> and in it, in the middle of it, there's a lot about climate change in it, there's a lot about, you know, altruism, and, and, and Frozen 2 also made a a uh, contract with the Sami people whom they hadn't made with in Frozen number one. So Frozen number two, Disney made a contract and an agreement with the Sami people about the representation of Indigenous people in Frozen two. So in many, many ways, it's a groundbreaking film. Anyway, in the middle of it is this statement against, you know, the oncoming apocalypse, which is to do the next right thing. And in my work with... Um, particularly the Mullinger community in the Northern Territory. I've really been guided, even before I saw the movie, by this idea of just doing the next right thing, just doing what feels right to me and to them. And it's, it's, 
been so enriching. I've produced an album of songs in a language only spoken by 50 people now. Songs about standing strong for country, about protecting water, about guiding and holding family against fracking. And I also had the Dixon family as collaborators in my last version of The Rapture, my masterwork on art versus extinction, which is everything from apocalyptic cabaret to true stories to dancing with the audience. And I think one of the things that as we progress and evolve in our lives is we're Australians, we live on the land of the oldest continuous culture on earth. And to engage with that, to face up to that, to say sorry for that, to actively work, to to come together for the sake of country, for the sake of all of our futures, is not only a great privilege, but it's also the next right thing. (laughs) You do amazing work in the arts field. Tell us about the project you're working on at the moment. Well... I'm working on a project called The Shop of Hope and it's um, I've been commissioned by a festival in Denmark to work with their community and I, I began to think about hope in action a few years ago and because of the climate emergency we're facing, because of the emergencies in human rights, because of our continuing emergency in gender violence and domestic violence, I began to think about hope as the weaponised human heart which means that hope in action is the most power we have as humans. Because when we act on the basis of hope, and hope is a certainty within us, a deep belief that things will change for the better, that we are unbelievably powerful. So that is my next biggest project, and it's where my heart lives at the moment. Um, You will see it popping up in my variety work, um, that we're bringing the burlesque hour back for her 16th anniversary in July. You heard it first here, 3CR. We only made the decision yesterday. But hope in action as something that we can all do every day and it doesn't matter what field we work in. Do we work with transgender artists? Do we work with old people? Do we simply stop and help someone across the road? Kinder, stronger, more resilient communities are what's going to change the world. So that's my project right now. Absolutely. And of course, you will be speaking at Wise Words Wednesday at Hares and Ienas, kicking off at 6.30. Just quickly, tell us about some of the other people who will be speaking. It's a real smorgasbord of artists. And I think that what people will experience when they come to Hares and Hyenas is that classic wonderful experience of coming into Hairs and Hyenas, one of the, you know, world's most iconic queer bookshops that serves up killer cocktails just in front of International Women's Day and hearing an unexpected and deep diversity of experiences and opinions. It's, I literally cannot wait. Awesome stuff. Maura Finnecane, it's been such a treat talking to you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. It's been a thrill, James. Looking forward to seeing everybody at Wise Words because I think they will not only be wise, I think they will be provocative, uplifting, stirring, challenging, and all of that with a drink in your hand. Awesome stuff. Can't wait. Thanks so much, Maura. Thank you. In Your Face would like to thank Thornhubber Health for their financial support of this program. 
Vaughan Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Vaughan Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.